Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. My motivation for this interview was, and still is, a continuation of my series on racial reconciliation. But after learning more about my guest, I wanted to expand the interview. My guest is Maida Commerce. I was introduced to her by Jim McCoy, whom you met in my very first episode, because Jim had taken the class Story Medicine for Racial Healing from Maida in her Story Medicine Wisdom School. In preparing for the interview, I explored Maida's website, StoryMedicineWorldwide.com, and had a good conversation with her. In addition to learning about the classes that Maida offers in her Story Medicine Wisdom School, I also learned that Maida is a poet, novelist, and a healer. Learning these things led me to the idea of having three separate interviews, because what Maida has done is to weave together her art, story medicine, and racial reconciliation into an amazing, important, and profound tapestry and resource. Even though the three threads form a unified tapestry for Maida, I wanted to explore each strand separately. So we will be going on a journey in these three interviews, from Maida's art to her development of story medicine, and then concluding with the use of her art and story medicine in racial healing. But in order to give some sense of the wholeness she has developed, the tapestry that she has woven, I'm going to be posting these episodes one week apart rather than my usual two weeks apart. I want to thank Carol and Tony Asiagi for letting us use the West Asheville Garden and Retreat Center to record these interviews. Having read her poetry and her novel, the best way I can introduce Maida to you is with the use of two quotes. The first is an audio clip from a documentary produced by Union Theological Seminary in New York City titled, Journey to Liberation, the Legacy of Womanist Theology and Womanist Ethics at Union Theological Seminary that can be found on YouTube. The clip is of Dr. Katie Cannon, who was one of the pioneers in developing womanist theology and womanist ethics. So let's listen. Being a front-runner in a lot of this work People want to dismiss the truth that I speak as anecdotal. If I don't have a scientific database where I can prove that what I've experienced is true for so many people, then it's not true. So the epistemological sea of forgetfulness is when people take truth that hurts, truth that goes to the core of the being, truth that goes to the marrow of the bone, and people want to say, if you can't prove it scientifically, factually, then it doesn't exist. So what I try to encourage people to do is that kind of truth that stings like a serpent's tooth, that kind of truth that makes your teeth itch, the kind of truth that causes some people to lose their minds up in here, up in here. So even when people call your truth a lie, tell it anyway, tell it anyway. The second quote comes from Dr. James Cone's book, 
The Cross and the Lynching Tree. In that book, Dr. Cohn quotes Reinhold Niebuhr as saying, People without imagination really have no right to write about ultimate things. Dr. Cohn believes Niebuhr was correct in this observation. Dr. Cohn goes on to say, It takes a powerful imagination grounded in historical experience to cover the great mysteries of black life. The beauty in black existence is as real as the brutality, and the beauty prevents the brutality from having the final word. Black suffering needs radical and creative voices, prophetic advocates who can tell brutal and beautiful stories of how oppressed black people survived with a measure of dignity when they were not meant to. Who are we? Why are we here? And what must we do to achieve our full humanity in a world that denies it? Those artists who accepted the challenge of answering these questions shouldered a heavy burden. As Conti Cullen wrote, I doubt not God is good, well-meaning, and kind. Yet I do marvel at this curious thing, to make a poet black and bid him sing. In this case, it's to make a poet black and bid her sing. And sing she does. So welcome, Maida. Thank you for being with me today. Why don't we begin by letting you tell your life story, and especially as that has led you to being a poet and an artist, a novelist? Well, I uh, first of all, let me say thank you. I appreciate um, the opportunity to talk with you. Um, I was born and raised in Chicago, Illinois. My... Um, my mother uh, was a poet, teacher, um, leader in the black arts movement. And uh, so she pretty much served as my example in terms of who I became. Um, prior to those days, uh, during the Civil Rights Movement, uh, I grew up in the black church, uh, Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church on the South Side, and uh, just it really in the lap of history, I grew up, and our pastor was Reverend Clay Evans, um, preacher, singer, all of those things. And so to grow up and see people like um, the Staple Singers and different, I mean, Mahalia Jackson would come to our church and sing with our choir. Oh, my. Yeah. Wow, that's wonderful. So I'm, not, I, I'm saying that I was in that place. Um, and to, to take all of this for granted, I mean, we lived on a block, maybe a block and a half from where... Um, Ernie Banks on cold winter mornings would be out shoveling the snow in front of his house, you know. So just to be surrounded by almost the who's who 
in terms of uh, black history at that time. Um, and so, you know, uh, Gwendolyn Brooks was a part of my upbringing. Um, she was, in fact, she mentored my mother. My mother was in a group of writers that she um, took under her wing and mentored. And so she was in the in the picture. Um, so there were there were people who were well known that were part of my life, and I have to say that I I knew it was a special time. I knew there was something about it that I needed to really pay attention to, but um, I didn't grab a hold of it like I could have. I'll say that. Um, went to Chicago Public Schools. I am a product of Chicago Public Schools. Um, I had teachers along the way that would pull me to the side after having read something that I wrote, particularly uh, by the time I was in the 12th grade, and encouraged me to keep writing and look at me with really a lot of surprise because I was a very quiet child. Um, and say, please, keep writing. And I looked at them, and I didn't quite get that, even. Mm. Um, I was a depressed child and didn't have the language for that, and so my outlet was writing. Okay. Um, and singing. I, I did both. I uh, had my own... Uh, singing group. It was a doo-wop soul yeah. singing group. Yeah, oh yeah. Uh, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade. And came that close to uh, recording, but did not. Uh, I got a lot of stories about, you know, those kinds of things that happened. Yeah. Um, had an opportunity to go and sit uh, with some writers and artists when James Baldwin came to town. Uh, my aunt, who was a uh, actress and had her own drama, drama troupe, uh, called one afternoon and said, is your mama home? And I said, no. Uh, well, Jimmy Baldwin is coming, and uh, you all need to be here by 630. Oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, we're probably just going to sit up with him all night and talk and uh, tell your mom as soon as she gets back. And so my mother came in. I told her what Aunt Val had said, and she took my brother and went because she asked me. She said, would you like to come? And I was so surprised that my mother gave me a choice. But she gave me... A the choice, other times she would have just drugged me on. That's the time that I wish she had a drug me on. No, Mom. <laughs> yeah. Because I stayed at home that night, and they went and sat up with Jimmy Baldwin. Wow. You know, so I, I got a lot of those kinds of stories <laughs> <laughs> that uh, I didn't know what I was missing. I didn't know what I was in the center of at that time. Um, but I know it now. Mm. <laughs> yeah. In hindsight, I really know it now. So, um, does that speak 
to some degree of the safety of the environment that you were in? Uh, I don't know about safety. I certainly didn't know about it then. Okay. Um, I think more than anything it spoke to my need for space of my own because it, that was almost something that was non-existent. Mm. Space and, you know, just quiet. Because there was always... Uh, traffic. There were always there was always company. There was always something going on because my mother was so pivotal uh, in that group of folks that um, she ran with, and uh, just the idea that I could have an evening to myself and. Uh, watch whatever I wanted to watch on TV, you know, that right. kind of stuff. Right. Nothing uh, nothing more than that. So um, it kind of got serious after that because uh, I had a uh, an opportunity to go away to school that I turned down and uh, got married instead had a child and got married instead. Uh, in my mind, love was uppermost because I felt like I was starving for it, to be honest. And um, so that's the route I took. I, you know, my brother went straight on. He, in fact, he ran from our community <laughs> to school <laughs> and never looked back really. Um, but not me. I I needed very much to uh, just set up housekeeping and just get my education, uh, or at least that round of it, uh, in domestic life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um. I also need to say that my great-grandmother who helped raise me and who was born in 1889 and not far from here in a place called Harriman, Tennessee, mm-hmm. um, was a sacred poet. That's what she called it. She wrote sacred poetry. Mm. And so I would see her... Um, reciting something she would also she had committed many things to memory mostly Langston Hughes Paul Lawrence Dunbar mm-hmm. and uh, she would just all of a sudden begin to read something recite something she was very much a uh, elocutionist uh, was the word she used and uh, between that and her own work uh, she kept a flow of something poetic going all the time. And so I had her also as an influence. My father, who I did not grow up with, um, but still, I guess, by his absence and also by what I have of him in my DNA, uh, was another influence. He was a jazz musician, composer, and vocalist. Mm. And uh, so 
therein lies uh, me, you know. Uh, creativity, uh, the need to write, read, perform, sing, uh, teach. Mm -hmm. That's and heal, you know, heal, all of those things for the sake of healing. I used to hear uh, writers in my mother's circle really deb debating fiercely um, the question of, is there any such thing for us as art for art's sake? Some would say yes, most would say no. Uh, in my life, I don't think we've ever had that luxury. Mm -hmm. You know, that it's just something to look at and marvel and, and uh, um, you know, let your eyes get big over. I think it all comes from the belly of our experience mm -hmm. as a people. Okay. Yeah. And you use it for the purpose of expression and... Expression, but not just uh, to get it out or cough it up, as I would normally say um, as as a, as the as a tool for um, to be transformed to take my experience and put it on the table as something valid as something important and then do something with that Okay. You know. I see. Yeah. So um, I'm a mother of three children, a daughter and two sons. Um, I poured my youth into them mm -hmm. uh, as well as into my relationship with my mother. We were always very close once I became... Um, uh, a woman in my own right, then we were more, really, we were more like sisters. Um, but I had, a, I had a ball raising my children. Uh, they're sweet children, and uh, I, had a, I had a good time with that. I had a lot of energy, and so I was able to keep up with them. Yeah. I was able to make the kind of home for them that I would have wanted to have um, yeah uh, and so when they uh, one of the commitments that I made to myself as a young person uh, and I, I, I did that along the way I will never do this I will never do that growing up um, at least as in terms of my uh, parenting mm -hmm. um is that I will never stop working and go back to school while my children are at home and depending on me, which is what my mother did. Okay. Um, so I waited. I, I knew by the time they were all uh, just about out of the nest uh, as my youngest was in his senior year of high school. That's the year that I went back to school. Okay. Uh, and by that time, I knew exactly what I wanted to study and exactly what uh, I was good at. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I knew that my writing was going to serve me somehow. I did not know it was going to become uh, my entryway into story medicine. I did not know that. Okay. So, um, also I became a healer in the late, let me go back. I began studying natural healing. And when I say natural healing, I'm talking about natural nutrition. Mm-hmm. Um, natural hygiene, and I even went to school on a part-time basis uh, to study that, and I, I thought at that time, I was in my mid-20s, that I wanted uh, to set up a practice, but with the children, my home, my marriage, my job, I was working full-time, I just ran out of steam after a certain point of that study and I never I never finished it. It's one of the things that I uh, wish that I had done differently. Um, but at that time, uh, there wasn't a lot of that kind of information in our community. I was still in Chicago then. Mm-hmm. And so, um, My mother and I would both teach these nutrition classes, and we taught them for free um, at this place. It was called the Institute of Positive Education. And I did that for, with her for six years, from 1974 to 1980. And so I had, you know, acquired a lot of information, a lot of knowledge about nutrition, um, how to keep the body well using food and uh, natural healing modalities. So that was always there. Um, And I did not know that uh, the, uh, the field of massage therapy had emerged between that time and the time that, uh, I got my first professional massage. A friend of mine was a uh, chiropractor down in Atlanta, and I was uh, working in a very high-stress job and in a lot of pain, and I came to see her. She gave me an adjustment and said, I've got a therapist here that I want you to see, and I, I agreed and went in and had that session, and I was never the same after that. That woman uh, put my mind in a state and just relieved the stress. um, And that stayed with me. I didn't do anything right away, but that that experience, uh, just the quiet, the quiet, the serenity. Uh, I remember that she wrote, she lit a candle. And I think I fell asleep after that. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I had come after work one day, and I had made special arrangements for the children. Um, And so it it just made a mark, an indelible mark in my memory. And years later, um, maybe three or four years later, I uh, had the opportunity to enroll in uh, uh, full time in a in a massage therapy program down in Atlanta, 
and uh, went into practice uh, later that year. And that became the uh, avenue by which I came into story medicine. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so when did you kind of begin... When did the spark kind of finally begin that I'm, I'm, I'm a poet. I want to write poetry. And oh, goodness. So I had, I had been writing poetry uh, since I was in my teens. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have any type of writing practice or uh, nothing regular about it. It's just that if something, uh, particularly with the examples of my grandmother and my mother, mm -hmm. Uh, and I used to see my mother on stages reading. And so I had these models of, you know, uh, taking it all the way out there. Um, but how did that translate into saying, I want to get a master's? In well, no, three. no. that no, Years and years of living and just because I, I, I learned slowly. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, uh, by experience, I think, more than anything else. Okay. And so life just took me into those places. Okay. Uh, but at, at the same time, whenever something would really um, impact me or impress me deeply, that memory would stay with me, and usually, uh, if I had any time to myself, I would find myself writing a poem. Mm -hmm. I used to write a lot of love poetry. Um, I would write, you know, poems for my mom. Uh, things that I felt deeply about, I would write poems about. Well, in along the same time, were you also writing, like, stories? No, no stories yet. Okay. Not yet. Stories would not come until much later. Um, I didn't have that kind of time, and, and I didn't have uh, the luxury of um, uh, just writing. Writing life for me did not come until I had an empty nest, until I was divorced, mm -hmm. and just really had that wide open space, and this is what, this was my first natural inkling what I wanted to fill it with. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Then I had no constraints, no one looking over my shoulder. I was free. And then, you know, that's what I did with my freedom. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. All yeah. right. That's the truth. Well, we want to hear some of your writing. Mm -hmm. uh, you're going to read for us a couple of poems and then a selection from your novel. Yes, yes. So I let's am. let's start with one of those. And okay. All right. This is a poem that uh, I wrote for my aunt Dolores. Um, my aunt Dolores lived a very short life. She. Uh, died very suddenly at age 46. Mm. And she was very influential in my life, a very strong presence. And she was always uh, pounding her fist on the table and saying, when, not if, but when are you going back to school? Mm. You know, and she would not 
let up. And so I wound up literally going back to school when I was 46 years old, the year that she um, passed away. So I wrote this poem uh, with her in mind, and I call it Mother Utility. Okay. So much finer. Mother Utility. So much finer. Okay. Works, works, miracles, whitewashed and heavy starched. She brings life, sings lullabies, spins cloth, keeps gates, makes homes. She tells jokes, weaves dream stories. Protects strong men and babies. She directs traffic, lets them pass go through her body and best dance moves. Pass go through scripted circumspect syllables. Her parceled polished sounds, doings and presence, all plumb pleasing. Admits no limit allows no gap between her knowings and professings. She runs, 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 runs for she still got it. Still moves refrigerators. She replaces broken window panes, changes locks without notice. She produces milk enough for butter. Her hands drop smooth pebbles into a purple velvet gunny sack. Those hands hold life together with such force that their memory drives the train once she's gone. Heals the sick with downbeat wisdom. Cooks, irons, cleans, and sews. She spews, maintains meticulous beauty, even and until her final act. When the clock strikes 12 and she's got nothing left to prove, or save no more, no need to entertain. Done humming those faded melodies, she tells the time one last time and nods, takes her bow, leaves a sparkling, stunning, floral-scented stage finer, so much finer than she found it. One of the things that I've noticed about your writing uh, is how deeply observant you are. 
um, that shows, and that poem to me, uh, I mean, shows how intimately you observed her, how intimately you knew her, uh, and expresses so much about what she was. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. She seemed like a wonderful, powerful woman. And she's very powerful. Very powerful. And uh, this poem I wrote for her younger sister, my Aunt Elaine, who um, passed away in 2010 also very suddenly, but she lived to be 69 years old. Okay. Uh, this, is, this is called The Secret for Aunt Elaine. Gone, her dreams torment thought goblins, mind bandits, escarpment all. To remember her is to shake in the cold winds of her leaving, shake in the temperature of each happening, constant falling and rising so very far. To feel the quickenings of regret pressed against the unforgivables handed down so thick, numerous, the seeming walls that choked the words and locked the secrets up. Love knows no secrets or walls or goblins, not really. And I stand calling for the day when they all, each pernicious illusion, shadow of shame, drop of false belief, sink into the ground, become the corpse we cover with soil. She's gone, auntie who taught me to dance, the funky four corners, so smooth and easy. She who wore her bronze mask during the 68 riots and wrapped in African garb declared, but I'm a soul sister, honey a soul sister. Her heart felt life or death prophetic pleadings. Ooh, he's handsome, warned her paused, pursed lips, warned behind lifted brows so that I'd know and heed. Touching, con contacting next world's Seeing, piercing through pretense, aching, pleading, writhing, changing, shifting, taking the air, the plunge, drifting, hurrying toward any promised relief and understanding. She was and is now our ancestor journeying on, journeying still into the waiting arms of love, that knows no bounds, time, pain, separation, love that only knows who she is. Oh, how I will miss her. 
genuine being, fever pitch begging, just one ear from deep inside, a hole locked, dislocated, just one ear for the healing. And the truth is, I always missed her. She was always missing, always hidden, loudly, deeply hidden in plain view and just missing. Oh, how I will miss her. Those are so powerful. I thank you. Thank you. For those. Um, there seems to be a great sense of being a part of a heritage and tradition that your great-grandmother and your mother, now you, uh, and so that it, it kind of flows through that lineage mm-hmm. of uh, kind of expressing who you are in the midst of the context of what you had to live through. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I, I noticed uh, this one. Um, you, it came from your book, Blues Doula. Yes. Um, tell us a little bit about the title of that, and because uh, it seems both to connect uh, with your interest in words and healing, and brings together those. Yes. Um, I grew up at a time when uh, a poet by the name at that time was called Leroy Jones. And he had written, I think it was a book called uh, Blues People. And I heard that, but I didn't quite understand it. I did it, it you know, I was a kid and I... Right. I knew about the blues and I heard it and it was always, it just made me feel so miserable. And so I never really uh, tried to learn about that. But as I lived life, (laughs) it it became relevant. (laughs) (laughs) And then I realized, oh, that's a big part of this. That's a part that I really had not um, explored. And uh, as I began to put these poems together, somebody asked me uh, if I had heard about the, the death doulas. And I had. There are death doulas living in the state of North Carolina that assist people in making their transition mm. out of life. Mm. And there's, a, there's an entire... It's... it's, a, it's it's a rite of passage. It's a ritual that they uh, help people uh, in process. Okay. So I had read an article about these women. Uh, one of them, I think, was Native American. One of them, African American, that the article was talking about, and that stuck with me. I, you know, doula. I know what a doula is. And then when I looked at these poems, I realized I am a blues doula. (laughs) (laughs) My work with people, you know, it it takes them to those stories, to those places that they had not told and that they had not spent time with. 
uh, and that they had spent a lot of energy not telling, mm. you know, um, and preparing a way, working with them somehow to prepare a way uh, for them to find their language and break their silence and go ahead and tell it. And so was was it was it other people's stories that led you into your own? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And I had done some of the same thing because I I didn't have any memory gaps. Uh, but what I did have was the, an absence of a sense of the importance of my story to me. Mm -hmm. There was nothing that I can recall ever where I was taught that my story mattered. Mm. that my voice mattered and that I needed um, to strengthen my voice and to uh, build my voice. Nobody ever talked to me like that. Mm. So, so your uh, poetry was more of just a, a personal therapy. Absolutely. But the absolutely. stories became your voice to others. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you for putting that so concisely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's... Uh, uh, thank you. I appreciate that. Well, you have written a wonderful story uh, in your novel, The Mending Time. Thank you. Uh, and you're going to read us a selection of that. Yes, I am. Um, I have... Uh, Selected part, it, the mending time is uh, my own demonstration of story medicine, and I don't answer questions about uh, where it all comes from. Most of it, uh, how can I say, it's like literary quilt making. Uh-huh. And... Uh, I just got started. I like and, that image. That's a great yeah, image. I, I, I got started and then it came to life, uh, took, took on a life of its own, and then the medicine showed up. Um, and it was an incredible process. It was a five-year uh, creative process for me okay. writing this book. So I'm, uh, and it, it's written in uh, four parts according to West African ritual. So I'm reading a part, uh, a segment from part two. And this is written in BJ's voice. BJ is the protagonist in this novel. And so, and in this at this point, B.J. is 12 years old. Thinking about the candy cheered me up. I know a whole lot about it. Didn't think I could live without it. I had learned from Big Mama who'd slipped me a sweet treat when she figured I needed one. That something sweet in my mouth made me happy. Candy was part of our trip. After Iris, I mean, that could only make it more perfect. And I let her carry all of it since I didn't bring a bag or anything. 
Besides, I did my part in getting it. Thinking one dollar's worth of candy would be enough, Iris and I chipped in 50 cents each. I took the dollar and went to the 72nd Street candy store to trade it for as many sweet treats as I could get. Once inside, I let my love for candy show me what to buy. First, I studied the counter and the big jars of pickles, pink eggs, and cookies sitting on top of it. That stuff wasn't candy, so I skipped it. Then I stooped a little and peeked through, peeked through the glass, remembering what we both liked, figuring what to get while I looked over all the candy colors and shapes, imagining the many flavors. So I asked for ten nut chews, two slow pokes, two sugar babies, two candy necklaces, one payday bar, one Milky Way, ten Jolly Ranchers, five watermelon, five sour apple, one box of Red Hots for Iris, one box of Lemon Heads for me, and four red lips. But in the end, I had to put two of the red lips back because I was a nickel short. With two, I had just enough. I figured this much candy would make the trip so boss for both of us. Thinking about the candy so much made my mouth water, had me fidget a little and start to twiddle again. I couldn't wait to bite into the payday. So like I was trying to spot something in particular, I looked through the bus window at the rows of houses darting past one after another trying hard to see or to think of something else besides the candy. And I saw some marshy patches surrounded by clumps of wild mustard, milkweed pods with, sh with flowers too, tiger lilies mostly, black-eyed Susans, and some cattails. They had taught me the names of some of the flowers. But noticing them now, I wondered how important flowers might be. Wondered if they have a special purpose, if they could even help us. Then with all these questions and ideas, I figured it might be nice to talk. So I turned to Iris. Hey, do you ever have the same dreams? At first, she just looked. She did that sometimes, her fingers twisting the end of her long braid, like she was thinking too hard to answer right away, like she needed more time. Do you mean, um, like one dream over and over? Yeah. No, but I bet you do. How'd you guess? Tell me, BJ, she smiled at me. Okay, but don't laugh. Do I ever? I guess not. I waited a minute before saying it. Sometimes I dream happy dreams. I see myself with my arms stretched out, with nothing but sky and clear air all around, so free, floating light as a feather over the birds, under the clouds, flying, and nobody can't stop me. I'm going no place. I could even be lost, Iris, 
but it doesn't matter anyway because I'm loose. I'm on my own, you know? Hmm, sounds nice. That's not the only one, I told her. You got more, she asked. Just one more. Want to hear? Sure, she said, turning more towards me, really looking. Okay, now, I'm the one laughing. I paused long enough to fix my face. In this dream, I'm driving. I'm 12, just like now, and I can drive as good as anybody, but I'm going backwards. I'm behind the wheel, driving everywhere I want, turned around. I'm going strong and grown. The wind is in my face. I'm waiting to ride big green no more, waiting for nobody. I said, happy to get all those words out. I thought about myself driving backwards, and after I laughed, my loudest laugh, Mrs. Matheny turned slightly and gave me the evil eye. Dag, B.J., you make it sound so real. Iris used her soft voice, trying not to laugh, too, her face turning red. Noticing her face, I said, it is real to me. You can laugh. Oh, B.J., she laughed slightly. So far, you've been flying and driving. You really do want to go someplace, huh? Wish I could tell you where. It does get boring, doesn't it? But I don't really feel bored. It's more like the song I woke up with this morning, the one Big Mama sings sometimes, Don't Fence Me In. I think I know what that really means. It's one person just asking to be free in this world, that's all. So you want to be free? Don't you? Dag, Iris, I got nothing without that. But you already have so much. Your room, books, your own, everything. What more do you want? I want to feel free. That's all. I, oh, look, distracted by the road sign, I read it aloud. State dooms five miles. Yeah. Good, but B.J., you got any more dreams? Um, let me think. Oh, I know. There's one more. You sure you want to hear? Yep, she smiled just then, watched me talk. And as she watched me, I knew I was, I knew I was talking but not really thinking about my words. I was thinking about Iris, how much I loved being with her, how special our friendship was. I just thought about her, that's all, and I wanted our day at the dunes to last a long time, and to turn into a whole new dream, and to stretch out long and playful and pretty, really sweet, like soft taffy. Their relationship was a great relationship. <laughs> I love their relationship. And, and, and it seemed as though, because, you know, through the novel, B.J. Um, is learning to find her voice. She has mm -hmm. those times where she can't speak, can't use her words. Right. And, uh, and Iris is a person that she can do that for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, I have favorite. You do? 
Yes, I okay. have favorite lines from your from your novel. One okay. of them on page twelve, um, and it says it's not talking about B.J. Um, and I should have written down who that was. I wrote down the line, but it says her awkward shape pushed her attractiveness outward, past her body to her personality, her wardrobe. Well, yeah, but that I like. I like that that image of, of the, that's uh, describing Aunt Bessie. Yeah, yeah, uh, and then um, uh, Jesse, Bessie. Well, and then the, the daughter, who's who's her sister is Jesse. Jesse, yeah, okay. Uh -huh. And so this is talking about Jesse now on page okay. twenty-five. Mm -hmm. That filter of space and time of mind skin most people have between themselves and the world was something Jessie Lee was just born without mm -hmm. because she missed nothing and felt everything. And then there were the assorted goodies life gave back to her. The children's new dances and rhymes, the mailman's whistling tunes. Uh, I think that, that's just such a wonderful description. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and then let's see, uh, which you were talking about earlier. This kind of gets into, uh, on page 84, uh, listening to the music. And it said, this music uh, said big things and had big feelings that came straight from grown folks' bodies that they didn't have to say outright, but lived with and danced about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah, I was talking about jazz, you yeah. know. And then on page 120, it talked about my brain just wanted to live. <laughs> <laughs> and then my favorite BJ uh, line was uh, on page 139, Speed and I don't get along. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, there's just a few. I've got a whole page. Yeah. Uh, oh, my God. Very nice speed, and I don't get along. Yeah. yeah. Well, this has been wonderful. Uh, and uh, so our next interview is mm -hmm. going to be focusing upon uh, how you've taken story and, and uh, moved into story medicine. And so you're going to explain that more fully to us mm -hmm. and talk about how uh, folks have managed to use story as a means of healing. Mm -hmm. and so I very much look forward to that. Mm -hmm. So thank you for this time together. Thank and you. I look forward to part two. Absolutely. Thank you. You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the worship project by going to the website, theportersgate.com. The audio clip of Dr. Katie Cannon from the documentary Journey to Liberation, The Legacy of Womanist Theology and Womanist Ethics at Union Theological Seminary is used by permission from Union Theological Seminary. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, 
go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth